Lightly Literary Podcast, the only book club podcast that also started an anarchist punk rock band, the Lightly Literary Band, that completely failed. We tanked that one. I think our podcast is a bit wobbly right now, but we're still here. This is the project we're committed to, I think. Excuse me. Welcome back, Amanda. Hello. What, uh, what instrument did you play in our failure band and our punk rock uh, anarchy band? Oh, man. Punk rock? Oh, let's see. Hmm. I would have played the bass. Yeah. There's only... You play the bass. I, di- I did. I did very briefly. We, we won't get into that brief, brief history. It was a couple of years, actually, but never well. And I didn't study or anything. It was mostly a casual to look cool kind of thing. But yes, that did happen. I there's only three instruments in, in in my mind in a true punk band. There's one guitar, one bass, one drum. To me, that's the platonic yep. ideal of a punk rock unit or outfit. Mm-hmm. Anything else just superfluous. I mean, that generates all the noise you need. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. and then a singer, <laughs> of course. Which I, in my mind, again in the platonic version, I'm picturing both of the guitar players as singing. You know, in different moments, mm-hmm. yelling at the same time occasionally, overlap, whatever. Yeah. You get more dy- dynamic kind of noise out of that, I think. Mm-hmm. I was trying to come up with, and, and perhaps we can delay this intro even longer, but I was trying to come up with a pun-based, because the band's name in the book is Persuasions. And so yeah, I was trying that, to... Th- which I love. <laughs> yeah, and I was trying to think of a band name for us, like a literary-based pun, but like with most pun generation in my mind, either it's instantaneous or if, if I try and think about it for more than about half a second, I just want to give up and I find it, I'm just, yeah, I immediately give up on the brainstorm and I'm like, I don't want to think of a pun for this, but there probably <laughs> is one out there. Probably. Maybe well, there already is one out there. There could be. There could be some kind of Jane Austen inspired cover rock band or something. I don't know. I don't know what they'd be covering. Turning the titles into songs or something anyway if you are dear <laughs> singing li- all these stories <laughs> yeah if you are dear listeners have created a jane austen themed uh, rock opera then please reach out as soon as possible we'll give our email yes. later for now let me plug some social media accounts as i mentioned we are the lightly literary podcast that's co-host amanda i'm travis we have social media accounts you can follow if you want to keep up with our literature podcasting and those are at the lightly literary podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Those are our two most active accounts right now. We post updates every week and show the schedule and the book, uh, the book picks and everything. So keep up with us there if you are curious. If you have no idea what we've been talking about for three to four minutes now, that is because today is a book club part two episode on a short story collection. I don't, that's not even appropriate though. A collection of right. writing, a diverse collection <laughs> called Sansei and Sensibility by Karen Te Yamashita. Part one was earlier, and it's also in the feed, so as a book recommendation for the same work. So if you've stumbled upon this episode and have no idea what this is, you are in the wrong place. We'd love to have you stick around, but there are other things you can go listen to if you're just getting started with this book or have no idea what this book is about. Um, in this episode, we'll be analyzing and talking about the whole work, but mostly the second half of it, which perfectly split up into the sensibility half, I believe, right? Yeah. So that's what we'll be discussing today, and that is our aim and objective today. Any thoughts, Amanda, before we dive in? I'm ready. Let's get to some Jane Austen work. This is it. This is your moment. I hope you're not nervous, but this is what your whole podcasting career has built to, I I think. I don't know. It's how I got into the podcast with you. That's true. This is how you enter the game, and this is gonna you're gonna show your dominance here in this episode. 
<laughs> I'll be disappointed. I This is a little background. Maybe I'll cut this, but I, I consistently speak way more than you in the episodes, which is a dynamic we're still messing with. But it, it's obvious in the edit, right? When you see the files laid out, it's like, okay, you know, I know who I am at this point because I talk way, way too much. But anyway, I think this will be the first one to invert this. I think this is it because I, I think I'm just going to turn the Jane Austen stuff over to you. Just let you run with the football for a while. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't mind not speaking as much. I, I get what I want to say out. Okay. Well, this is, I'm put. I'm just, well, I'm warning you early that this one's going to be on your shoulders. Hopefully they're nice and warmed up. Let's get to it. We'll begin. I got it. Yeah. We'll begin our part two book club on this uh, work, Sensei and Sensibility, with highs and lows. This is how we like to conclude the book clubs, just talking about what we enjoyed in the back half and what we did not enjoy. Amanda, I'll throw it to you first and you can pick high or low. I'll leave that up to you. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll choose a high mm-hmm. to begin sure. with. Um, I will say that she does have some unique comparisons and descriptions, and she is pretty good at uh, playing those comparisons throughout a piece of writing. Um, so what I have uh, picked from is from her lecture essay um, mm-hmm. called "Kiss of Kitty." <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, to be which is actually the first half. I was going to say, but, to be um, fair, that's in the first half, but that's perfectly yeah. fine. Okay, good. Um, so it's um, it spans several pages. So mm-hmm. the, the first is, um, I know my parents read the Chrysanthemum and the Sword. There was always a copy of it in our library den. I read it too and thought it was the Bible of what it meant to be Japanese, like samurai, beautiful and violent with intricate categories of duty, obligation, and shame. There's something endearing, though likely only for the novelist, about occupying a people with their own fiction. And then a page later it says, occupying a people under the auspices of chrysanthemum and sword might mean that people play out the chrysanthemum in order not to suffer again the sword. And then... Towards the end, she says, Asian cyborgs and clones abound in our media and literature. It's not just that robots and movies are human actors. It's now our assumption that humans can, like the cultivation of the chrysanthemum, be perfect. So we see that repetition. She takes the the book that she's referring to at the beginning, and she uses that uh, chrysanthemum, the flower, as uh, something that is a repeating image and a repeating comparison throughout the entire essay mm-hmm. presentation thing. It's, yeah it's a bit of an essay <laughs> no for sure it's yeah. and i think those insights that's where her academic i think background right because i believe yeah i don't know in her day-to-day she's clearly a pu- published writer but i think she's a professor too i believe that's she her is, yeah yeah one of her jobs so yeah i think it's where her writing is the most fun kind of playful with its ideas but also not it's not too overbearing it didn't feel didn't feel like you'd see it in jstor or whatever it didn't feel totally overly researched or something really formal you know there's no thesis presentation at the or whatever they call those at the beginning the abstract or whatever Mm -hmm. (laughs) so it wasn't too overwhelming but yeah there's some yeah interesting insights in that one i think you chose a good quote too and she does evoke that's the other thing she evokes she does a good job as the, a work of this you would hope would do with evoking and kind of connecting the the past to the present. Those images yeah. do that really well. Kind of these mm-hmm. traditional Japanese symbols, ideas, and sort of putting them into a modern context, trying to resolve those things, I think is pretty solid for sure. Yeah, she does a good job with that for sure. Yeah. I'll segue that into one of my high moments. I did all of mine from the back half, just to be clear. But again, perfectly fair game. Whole book is fair game. Um, my, my high in the back half was, I think that her 
kind of casual critiques of suburban American life and how that kind of erodes and corrupts in subtle ways, even even as you attain the characters attain or have attained kind of the upper middle class trappings and lifestyle. I think that that becomes some of the sharpest insight and criticism in the back half. And so I think that's kind of a generational commentary, too, since a lot of the Obviously, a lot of it is about how the older generations of Japanese immigrants and then Japanese Americans were suffered under horrific conditions. And then now they're kind of transitioning into, you know, whatever normal, quote unquote, American life would be or something. And so as they, you know, acclimate or something over the generations. But there were some characters There were those really overly involved PTA members. That's always a good, I think, kind of suburban archetype almost at this point there were those aunties who showed up in a story that had really eerily clean houses but they seemed really content with it they're kind of they lived alone but were kind of proud of it or whatever and that it it just seemed like every house was filled with windows and bedrooms and felt very sterile and there now granted there is a bit of an aesthetic i think when especially when you think of like a traditional japanese garden that's kind of like pristine organized it's you know you got the rock gardens the the trimmings of the trees and it's just very precise and i think that the houses kind of evoke that too but they're it all feels kind of lifeless there's a lot of characters in these stories but sometimes i don't know i guess there's not really the the kind of happenings of life around them at times too with with some of the older characters i love that i love that description of of her the the empty house versus um the characters i think that's pretty spot on and something really insightful about her writing that i had not even thought of and i think and i you know this could be me under over reading i hope that was intended i personally found some of the characters kind of missing a core and that could just be me not responding to the work or misreading it or it could be as intended and i'm just jiving with kind of what she sees as an absence in this lifestyle and this time or this place of kind of this really bleached suburban California that these characters live in, which must be a real Mm -hmm. place. I didn't Google it though. Is this a real like quadrant or neighborhood or something? The Gardena, I think is actually, it is a real place. Okay. I think that, uh, yeah, I looked it up. It seemed too hyper specific not to be right. I just assumed it was real. Otherwise she invented a whole little universe there. (laughs) One of those two (laughs) things. Which would be amazing. (laughs) That would be kind of cool actually. Now let me, I'm going to hog this one. Sorry. I'm doing what I said I wouldn't do and I'm doing it again. I can't be stopped. I'm just (laughs) rampaging on the, on the mic, but I do want to quickly segue into a low because I did not respond well to this, uh, the collection as as a whole, I would say, especially the fiction, but I I just want to segue that into, because I think that comes with a low moment too. I think a lot of the generational insights actually felt kind of limp. I think they're there though. And there were some insights and interesting things, but I, as a white American man who has no connection to immigrant life at all, other than through news, friendships, and just my observations of the world and, and stuff, communities I've been in, what you know, whatever, social connection, I don't think I learned anything from this book. I, I just think a lot of it came down to pretty simple conflicts that I had heard headlines about or had heard about before. Now, that doesn't make it bad, though, but I just don't think it had a... I think it lacked a depth for me. Um, I've got one quote that I want to pull from from 169 here. This is the persuasion story with the band in it. Um, Mm -hmm. And this is a paragraph here in the middle of it. 
So check this out, which odd tone in this story. Another case of like, why is it speaking like this? I don't get this character. Who is this narrator anyway? And it reads, so check this out. Anne went on, went on to college, double majored in biochemistry and comparative literature, did a year abroad at the Sorbonne, joined the Peace Corps in Ecuador, then got an advanced degree in public health and did field work in Senegal and Cameroon, translated and co-published numerous articles in international journals of public health and epidemiology. Don't even know. Is that skin cancer? I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> wrote a collection of short fiction set in Dakar, married in divorce an African diplomat, and by year eight, fluent in four languages, was traveling internationally for the World Health Organization for the prevention and study of tropical diseases. An effective run-on paragraph, it, it accomplishes, I think, its literary task, but a lot of the characterization felt that way to me where, okay, the insight there is that in her immigrant community, she was pressured to be hyper-competitive in school and be a hyper-achiever. And I just, like, okay. I, I don't think that story, though, resolves her and the other, the boy contrast who he, he kind of ha- lives his rebellious band life. I guess mm-hmm. I just walked away from a lot of those stories thinking, like, kind of nodding, thinking like, okay, that's a well-written version of a thing I kind of understood as an outsider, things I hear about and can observe or, or read about. I just, maybe it was because the literary kind of character stuff I would have wanted was either not there or turned up, but I just didn't feel like I walked away from these with a profound new realization of immigrant life, which I guess it's a really wild, broad thing I said. Do you feel that way too in general? Did you feel like it had really sharp, precise insights or something? So that's funny because one of my highs is actually that I thought that some of her writings are thoughtful and insightful. Um, I think that as far as the generational splits, I, I agree that actually of the insights that she offers, of the ideas that she offers, because it, this entire collection is about the Japanese American um, experience, especially specifically her experience as a sansei. I think that the generational splits are the the least developed, or maybe it's not even least developed, but it's something that I think is is so even American in a lot of ways, where it's like, well, yeah, like. Even I think in American households, like uh, trying to, you know, if you're um, a liberal minded, like most millennials now, right, versus mm-hmm. like grandparents who lived through um, like the wars and stuff like that, they're going to be a lot more um, conservative in a lot of ways. I think that those come across and can be something that um, any person reading this would totally understand. But I think she doesn't really highlight how it's different necessarily with um, the immigrant experience of like generational rifts. She kind of like touches Mm -hmm. on it sometimes, but she doesn't really develop it. So I think that of the insights that she offers that the generational rift is not exactly the one that stood out to me. And let me just segue, because I think I have a thought on that or can connect that to my other low I think mm-hmm. this the fiction in this book is too ambitious, and I kind of was concerned about that in the first half. Remember the colonoscopy story where I mm-hmm. just thought there's an idea here to be sure and a pretty – actually, I thought interesting if not kind of just funny and simple scatological metaphor or something to be had, but it just felt like it was cramming so much, which left me with nothing to t- think about because there was too much to th- – 
parse or something. And I think the Jane Austen half really got away, at least for me, I I, I don't want to say it got away from her. You know, she's a writer in command of her, of her work to be sure. But I thought the scope of these stories was just totally out of whack. I didn't, it was hard to ground myself in them. They had a lack of urgency or kind of situation or if they did it was summarized up front but then there's a lot of jumping around there's a lot of character and time jumping and I think if I had to guess anyway that's because she's trying to crib and kind of do twists on novels in short story format which is just a wild premise that's just a really maybe overly ambitious project or something and so I think I, the stories just didn't have momentum for me. I, they, they didn't they didn't get a thrust going or something. Um, and I think that relates to the generational stuff because so much of it is in summary. That so much of it is just like kind of instead of letting it unspool really like carefully, slowly, and you get to kind of feel some of the tension or something, a lot of it is done really fast. Um, I've got a couple quotes for this. The beginning of the Emmy story on 143 says... Henry Moriucci left the dead and tattered belongings of his life and camp behind and returned, a broken but still determined father with three daughters, to his childhood farm in the southern and then still rural reaches of Southern California. Returning to his father, old man Moriucci's place had been neither his nor the old Issei's plan, but the war changed everything. And then he goes on to talk about his father. But it's kind of quick descriptions like that. Like, okay, I mean, he was at the camp, but we don't know about what that was really like. It was bad, and now he's determined to work and go back home. Or You know, it just it just all feels very quick to me, I, I suppose. Maybe it's that the stories had interests that were not my own, and I, you know, I was trying to avoid projecting my own desires or interests onto stories that are constructed. But I just think... I don't know, from 161, from the Japanese-American Gothic, another quote to kind of illustrate this. There's a paragraph that begins, Okay, so we got our heroine and hero in a car at night cruising the L.A. freeways talking about life's choices. The hero's sister chose the revolution, but it never happened. The hero's brother chose the military, but that too never happened, well, like he expected. Turned out he was mistaken for the enemy, and it was true. The enemy looked like him. After he was killed, uh, he killed people who looked like him. He came home, and no one thought he was a hero, least of all himself let's just stop there that is a sentence that is a short story but it's a sentence Mm -hmm. here like (laughs) you could do a story of a brief like person having a disassociative event in a war where he's fighting against native countrymen that he doesn't know and can't connect with even a even a small moment like that in the war would be a short story i just think what i want out of short fiction is so much more narrow and focused than these had the ambition to be so when I'm reading stuff like that, I think I just started to glaze over at times, though I did try and be diligent and like reread when I feel like I was losing the thread. I, I don't know. I just could not get a foothold in some of these. And so the generational stuff to me just felt really kind of just quick and, I don't know, situationless or something. Maybe that's part of why I didn't come away feeling like I gleaned anything. I think, too, so this collection is meant specifically so the the first quote that you pulled about um, the father having come back yeah. from the camps yeah um this collection is specifically from the sansei perspective which means that that i believe it was the 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 nisei right who right were right incarcerated yes so then um the emmy story actually is is about how the the sansei generation because the nisei generation had gone through that and didn't want to speak of it right the sansei generation right. had no idea about it um 
So I think that the silence at the beginning was meant to, she doesn't want to focus on that experience because that experience was not the Sansei experience. Right. Um, But I agree with you where, so that was um, a low for me too. Actually, I have a couple of lows as well. Um, I said that one of my lows is that the characterization and plot continuity are sometimes overlooked in her pursuit of thematic purpose. So that makes her writing more academic in nature and less of a story in a lot of ways. So going into this, looking for storytelling, um, actually storytelling in, in this collection is kind of like, it's just it's secondary to getting her message across about whatever. And so the, the yeah. telling aspect uh, in her writing, like, let me just bluntly tell you these things. And yes, sometimes I'll show you those things, but I'm not going to interweave it very well. I think that's, that's in her pursuit of, she's got so many ideas and so many things that she wants to, to talk about as far as the Sansei experience that I think that she, she for maybe not forgets, yeah. but she, she focuses on that more so than she does on the the storytelling aspect. I think um, here's an arbitrary test I just made up in my mind as you're giving examples of this or of, of that in general. Mm-hmm. I quite literally cannot tell you, and this is in relation to the generational, which I think is the generational divide is a big focus of it too, but I like quite literally can't tell you about a single relationship in this in these stories. I, just, I don't remember any character connections of any potency or strength or insight I, the only ones to me were in the the letter writing story at the back um mostly because i think there's just a lot of voice in those and they're so f- they're so narrow it's one family like three or four people it's really focused and so there's that one but then the other one was the woman who is really rich and has a warehouse or something in the philippines a factory mm-hmm. and but even then it's the commentary there is, I think, more about the kind of economics and kind of her elitism and all that stuff in there. But it's like I remember her position or kind of what she maybe represented, but I don't remember mm-hmm. how she even like interacted with other people. But I, I don't know. I guess I would think coming out of this, I would have a there would be a, a one character relationship between those generations that really stuck out to me or made me feel something or evoke. And I just don't think I'm going to leave this remembering any of that stuff. I'll, I'll remember the Omaki, is it Omaki-san story? The letter at the end. Yep, Omaki-san. Omaki-san, yeah. yeah. And it, just because her own journey was so unique and I thought it ended with a little bit of a twist that kind of was sharp and kind of funny in its own little way. But, I yeah, I don't know. I, I guess I don't know what I expected. Maybe I, that's me just bringing expectations to something. It just, these felt more rigid or formal or ambitious or something was lost for me. It is very ambitious, um, and and one of the other ways that I thought that it was perhaps lent to its academic nature rather than its storytelling nature is the amount of illusions that she Mm -hmm. uses throughout her writing. And if you're not familiar with what she is referring to, you're just like you're you're lost, right? The entire sensibility section is a Jane Austen reference, and if you're not familiar with Jane Austen's um, novels, then you're not going to get the tone. You're not going to get those character affiliations and stuff like that, right? Yeah. But even in the first half, there's a lot of illusions that maybe we not might not know, right? So there's like 
Borg, Borg, Borgis and yeah, I. Yeah, the surrealist storyteller. Yeah, the yeah. surrealist story. If you have no idea who that person is, which I didn't. Also, sure. there's a whole bunch of other people that she lists in that story as well. So you're just yeah. not going to appreciate it if you don't have that previous knowledge. There's allusions that she uses in Indian Summer and Kiss of Kitty and, and all these other writings. It's it's good to have allusions, but they are so hyper-specific and they are so academic in nature. Yeah. Yeah. That it's like, I mean, if you took, if you studied specifically like English literature, you might get half of these, Oof, <laughs> right? Yeah. But if you are not somebody who has studied that, I, I think that it, it'll be difficult to kind of really appreciate uh, her comparisons and, and stuff like that yeah. by her with her reading. Yeah. Talk about a cruel comparison, but I'm going to make it anyway. I taught when I was a middle school teacher, I taught Farewell to Manzanar, which is probably the most, it's a, it's a middle grades book. It's not some advanced, you know, adult literature, literature in the canon or something, but it's, it's an effective story. Well told. And, you know, like a lot yeah. of young adult fiction can be. And I just, I'm come I come out of this book and that's where my brain went, which shows my limited perspective in this world of Japanese American experience. But then I thought, okay, that's what th- these are the things I know. I, why would I recommend her collection over Farewell to Manzanar if I wanted? Let's say somebody just said to me, "I don't know anything about Japanese American history. Like, what's that about? What are significant things? Like, how can I?" understand this world this history whatever why would i give them this book over that one i like the other one sure it's simpler and like not as you know grandiose maybe in its ambitions but this does feel like a again that's where maybe i'm coming down it's just i don't know if i had a deep connection or understanding with some of the topics here just because the wrapping it was put in it's just felt pretty complex or something to me too ambitious or something and i i was lost in the jane austen sauce or something i was i was trying to think too much and it didn't let me think about the things i wanted to think about or something equivalent mm-hmm. to that it i don't know it just felt messy and i know that that is an arbitrary test i again just made up but i just i don't know why i would recommend this if if that was what somebody wanted to learn about let's say or think about well i think with this story, these stories, these this collection too. Uh, one of the things about like the emigrant um, memoir type writing is that there's like a, a focus on on cultural trauma. Yes, right. Um, and so she does mention that cultural trauma and stuff like that, but because mm-hmm. I, I think that she was just trying to avoid it being an internment camp of course specific writing and so by by trying specifically to avoid that but still show perhaps some of the later effects on the next generation i think that Mm -hmm. it's a lot to it's a lot to to showcase in a lot of ways and and yeah and because this is like almost like a hodgepodge of ideas in a lot of ways it's it's difficult to what what i think would is something that you would have liked um, about about this is if it were organized in a way that had like a thread of thought that could have been pulled throughout rather than this all encompassing idea of like Sansei and then all the the different ideas that she has coming out of her mind about what it means to be Sansei in these short little blurbs. Yeah, right? if there was something yeah. that could have been pulled through for you, I think I think that's something. And some of the characters and moments will be representative to me in terms of 
because I do think you've you've nailed the first completely. Let's not misrepresent the project that this book must have been. She yeah, she has no interest in writing farewell to Manzanar, you know, which is perfectly right. fine. It's incredible, in fact, incredibly valid, given that she. I assume I actually don't know this, but I'm assuming that was not her age group, right? That she's younger, like she didn't live through that. I don't think. I, I don't guess think I shouldn't speak out of turn for sure, but that's my assumption since I think she's younger. But so no, I, I completely agree. I just. I'm trying to think back to the stories and just think, what's a a character moment that's emblematic of how those generations don't they don't fit together, they don't match, they don't believe in the same things. They, there's conflict, and I don't know. All I'm gonna remember is being lost, trying to piece together old Austin plots I've forgotten, and see if I'm like missing some wit or puns that I should be, or some kind of social <laughs> critiques of really. Uh, I don't know. I I really got lost and stuck in these, and that's you know probably on me. Um, before I speak any more, do you have any more highs or lows that covered all of mine for sure? Um, yeah, that was, that was pretty much it. Um, for me, like the lows were the characterization and plot continuity, Mm -hmm. the, the illusion. And then like my other high was just, I thought that her writings were insightful as long as you were okay with like jumping from idea to idea. So for me, what pulled me through the entire thing was just focusing on the idea idea of identity. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I pulled a quote from page 164, mm-hmm. which said, um, which is from the story, the Japanese Gothic. Mm-hmm. Um, and it says, so pretend for a moment you're American, pretend you're Japanese, pretend you're Nisei, pretend you're Kibei, pretend you're Sansei, pretend if you mix and shake it up enough, no one will know the difference that even you won't know. So I think that kind of summarizes the idea of like how identity is so complex for these, yeah. for this particular generation. Um, and, and that's what pulled me through the entire book. Well, and it's a perfectly emblematic quote to maybe end this section on, because I'll say this, there's no denying at a sentence to sentencing tactic, you know, she has the craft. That's a incredible sentence. It, it's a jumbling. I guess I, here's maybe my point. I leave that grouping of sentences with more of an insight than I ever felt at the end of any of these stories. And that's mm. that's maybe where my my total kind of mental state is here with this. It's that I acknowledged as I was going through them that there were things happening that really functioned in the stories, little insights, takeaways, and just some dynamics at play, ideas about immigration and also generational things. I just, at the end of every story, I felt empty. I just couldn't, I, I couldn't grasp what had happened or what it was meant to have happened or what it, what it meant to represent again, except for maybe the Omaki-san story, which maybe we'll talk more about in detail, but yeah, it's like that, that quote you chose is just perfect because it's just calcified in my mind. Now I read that quote and I'm like, oh yeah, that is, you know, shake it up. No one, even you won't know. It's this kind of really contradictory, really precarious status, but I, I don't think I felt that insight at at the end of any of these and i i don't know Mm. i was having a hard time getting a foothold i guess in a literary way let's move to the imaginary essay because i've already eaten up chewed up enough time on this one but it's crucial in this segment we (laughs) talked about this pre-pod it is crucial that i begin by giving you your essay amandic because this is the moment here well, I guess we talked about it in the recording, too, which I'll probably leave in, by the way. But anyway, um, there's only one question here for you who has a master's in... Is it officially a British literature, or is it some other title? Comparative or something? Oh, my master's is just in English. Oh, just in English in general. Okay, there we go. Even broader. All the all of it. The whole thing. The whole kit and caboodle. Britain and all the other places. Anyway, 
that, but I know you focus on Jane Austen. I know that's come up on the pod. If you're a diligent listener, you probably knew that about Amanda just in the background. But anyway, there's only one question, <laughs> which is how do you assess her updates to these Austen classics, most of them novels, as far as I knew? Did it work? Did it not work? What's your assessment? You're the only person on earth I would trust with this question. So just please begin now. I'm going to go take a 20 to 30 minute break and then I'll come back and we'll we can reconvene. But uh, take it away. Go wild. Um, sure. <laughs> uh, so I think that, so first of all, I think that if you're not familiar with Austin's works, you're not really going to have a great appreciation for what Yamashita did with uh, the Austin works, she took each novel that Austin wrote, including uh, Austin's, I think it's technically incomplete, but Lady mm. Susan um, was the the model for Omaki-san. Um, oh, so she, okay. she has all of them, and then she distills it down into these um, short stories. But if you're not familiar with these short stories, a lot of the... Specifically, the characters are going to fall really short for you, Um so we know for Jane Austen that uh, Jane Austen wrote drama and she drew, uh, she worked on specifically the dramas within um, higher class societies um, and how and the interworkings of people. Um, and there's always a romance. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I felt fell short in almost all of these stories, except for Omaki-san, is the romance aspect, which is unfortunate because in Austen's novels, the romance aspect actually helps to develop characters in a lot of ways. It helps them to become more insightful of themselves. It helps them to grow and mature as characters. Like it's not just like romance for the sake of romance sake, but it is meant to play off of the character development specifically for her female protagonist. Mm -hmm. So... That said, I was kind of disappointed overall in how romance, like, there are romance stories in these short stories, but it's like, you you don't have a connection to it because she's relying so heavily on your knowledge that these characters are supposed to be paired up, that she doesn't actually take the, the time to show how they match up and how they get to be together and stuff like that. She's just like, well, you know that they're supposed to end up together. So I'm just going to move on from there. Mm, Um, so that I say fell flat for me, uh, while reading this. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that in general, these story, most of these stories, um, they, they work thematically, even if you are unaware of Jane Austen, the Jane Austen connection. Um, but I think that it's more enriching and more you'll be able to better understand the story if you you have read Jane Austen's novels. I don't know if you felt I know you've read a couple of Jane Austen, right? Yes, my the one I tried the hardest on for sure. Well, there were two that I really tried on, and that was the Pride and Prejudice inspired one, which I don't even remember. And then the, there we go. Okay. And then the Emmy story, which, because Mm -hmm. I saw that movie from last year, which I really liked that kind of updated one with the Anya Taylor joy in it, kind of an updated Mm -hmm. aesthetic. And I enjoyed that movie. Fine. I'd never read the book though. So that's my, and then I've read that short fiction, the penguin stuff, her early writings and all that. So it's not, my study of her is not deep, you know, but I, Pride and Prejudice, I put in my AP, you know, my AP high school lit class worth of effort. So I feel like 
that was the one that I knew something was going to go wrong with this back half because I was trying very hard to see the pride and prejudice of it all and just kind of was missing it. I thought that that one was not, I thought that it was pretty spot on as far as like, um, Mm -hmm. Mrs. Berg, who is the writer. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that thematically though, it didn't quite match up. So I was just going to go story by story and I guess I'll start with Giri and Gaman. Um, so it's all about perception, right? uh, The theme for both the the novel and this short story is about perception where pride and prejudice obviously is about like how you see another person and the the prejudices that you have and the assumptions that you make about them whereas in this short story it's perception but it's about um how the mrs berg is a white american who is writing about not Japanese Americans, which she can observe, but about the Japanese because she finds them more interesting than Japanese Americans. But she's going to use the Japanese Americans in order to, her Japanese American students, in order to make assumptions about Japanese culture, right? Um, so, <laughs> so it's that idea of like perception as far as like how you you formulate these ideas. And I think that on a bigger scale for that too it it ties to her writing in the first section about kiss of kitty where you have these uh specifically the west coming in and making assumptions about what japanese culture is like and then kind of like molding it and making it into something that they can understand and therefore that they can consume in a lot of ways and kind of overtake um which is what this writer mrs borg is doing so I, I thought that was really interesting which, and, and I thought which uh, so she's this using I remember that she's kind of snooping on them to and for some teen drama to kind of write about. Yeah. But what which plot line or part of Pride and Prejudice is that similar to then? I, I, that's what it just the overall theme of of so in Pride and Prejudice, the reason that Lizzie and Mr. Darcy are at odds with each other. Right. And why groups of people are at odds with each other is is that they have these perceptions of each other based on like gossip and based on other ideas or okay. observations that they've made that are too generalized. So it's all these generalizations about a group of people, okay. specifically okay. families and stuff like that. Yeah. So just in general, like a, a wide scope, they're pretty similar in Got that it. way. Okay. Do you think so? Um, I the, the my reading of that story will forever be my AP teacher yelling at us, not yelling, but yelling in a kind way <laughs> that it's not a romance, it's a satire, yada yada. I get yes. that. I I've read all the satire. It's a good satire, etc. Fine. And then also that, but it's always through the lens of their relationship. Like you said, the romance is leveraged for a reason. It's leveraged in right. that story for satire. And one could debatably say, you know, a lukewarm if not good romance, whatever. They end up seemingly pleased or what have you but uh, like right. did this have a romance then that i was under reading or something like i was waiting for i was waiting for a character to kind of be attracted to another character and then their relationship reveals some satirical elements of their community and then in the end it's resolved and i it, am i did that happen no uh, um, yeah, so I, the yeah. the only romance that's developed there not even developed but that happens is um between jane and uh, Charles, who is Charles Bingley from Pride and Prejudice. So oh, okay. that's how Bingley, Charles, is the one who introduces um, Darcy to right. Lizzie's circle, right? So 
that's what they're used for and that's the only romance like Darcy and Lizzie and in Geary and Gaman they play act at a romance in order to kind of like throw off uh Mr. Collins's spying right okay stuff, right but but there is no actual romance development between them um there's not even like it seems like a friendship or anything it's just like it's like I said it seems like with with romance for Jane Austen, it is meant to be character development. But the way that Yamashita uses it, it's like she just uses it uses it as like a crutch for hey, if you've read Jane Austen, I don't mean crutch, but she uses it as uh, a way to say like you if you've read Jane Austen, then you already know what these characters are like. Therefore, I don't have to really develop those characters yeah. you should already know i mean if you believe that or you read it that way then that that's the missing missing puzzle piece in my discontent or something because that may i mean yeah, yeah I, I wasn't connecting with it felt like i was missing sentences or something you feel like a madman reading this or something because <laughs> it yeah that story even the way it concluded i remember so the mr benihana at the end right with him going to the movie just having a good time there's a reference to salinger which i couldn't for the life of me make a connection to at all but whatever (laughs) i was like at this point i can't process 20 new ideas or you know i'm already (laughs) thinking about why are they talking about the graduate or something anyway um but i remember the father in pride and prejudice is kind of the all-time i'm chill man i'm above it i'm just here to like support my daughters if i can is that is that a missed Am I misremembering him? Is he some other kind of figure? Uh, no. I mean, yeah, he was very supportive, but he was also really um, satirical. Like, he yeah, was, yeah. like, the voice of satire. Right? Yeah. He, and he definitely, like, points out people's foibles and stuff. Doing yeah. the most teasing, kind of being open-eyed yeah. and kind of... And even at his own wife, who I remember, is she's kind of a bit more heightened. She's more stressed, and he... Is that not... Just to say yep, that's, that's wrong. It, uh, this is my memories of over a decade ago. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, yeah. It's correct. Okay. So, <laughs> and then, so at the end I was like, okay, is that supposed to be him being that role? But then as I looked back over the story for moments with him, cause then I thought, okay, he was maybe the character I should have latched onto to help parse this in my, help my brain understand this story. But then I couldn't find many good moments with him in it. And then I was like, well, I don't think he's fulfilling the same role. Maybe that's not. I've, yeah, I, again, my bad memory just grasping at straws for, in this thing. I, I think your thematic reading of it is fantastic, but I was just looking for a plot character match, you know, I, and I just couldn't find, <laughs> I don't know what I was looking for. Yeah, so as I was reading these stories, like the very first one that we read is uh, Shikatakanai and mm-hmm. Motenai, which is Sense and Sensibility. And okay. that one, when I read it, I was like, uh, okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So then I had to think about it and I was like, okay, so what kind of connection can I make here? So that one for me was, I really struggled with because, uh, it was, the characters were underdeveloped, right? Comparatively. I mean, it's, it's, it's a big thing to try to emulate Jane Austen, right? Yeah, Um, I would say so. So it's it's a big undertaking. And then she does not develop the characters and she, the style was her own, which is great, but, but it didn't really like throw a whole lot of like um, similarity to Austin's. And then like the plot was 
I mean, there I could see glimmers of some similarity, but then it was just so wildly different at the same time. So I was like, what in the world am I reading? And that's when I was like, okay, well, think about what is the purpose? Because I know from Yamashita's first half mm-hmm, that yeah. she very much is about the message. So I was like, okay, what is the theme of this story? And so I had to think, and that's how I approached each of her Austin stories is to think about what is the theme and then from there make the connection to the Austin story itself. Got it. Okay. And I'm going to have you and, go through all of them. I'm going to make you do this. <laughs> yeah, I, you're well, going the distance I, here. I pulled it for hopefully, it. <laughs> hopefully you're okay with I'm glad we got to break down the Pride and Prejudice one. It's the only one that I have literally any thoughts uh, about the reference material on. Yeah. <laughs> I have zero yeah. thoughts about the others. Um, though, like I said, I responded well to the Omaki-san story on its own. But take the other ones away. Feel free to go into any of them with as much depth or as you see fit, I guess. Yeah, so I, I prepared it in, in that way, actually, um, in anticipation. So um, with the first one, with the Sense and Sensibility one... Um, I I thought that the theme was actually like the idea of looking to the past and the need to enjoy the present is mm-hmm. how I viewed it. And I'm still not a hundred percent sure that that's actually the theme. This, this story still perplexes me. Like I feel like I need to go back and reread it again. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reason that I think it, that is the actual theme is like the beginning is so what we would envision as like authentically Japanese in a lot of ways, because Mm -hmm. it starts with they're wearing like their kimono, they're over a bridge, they're looking at koi fish. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And then it goes into like later, they're like sitting next to the pool and they're driving and all this stuff. So it's like that disconnect. And that's uh, what I think was meant to bring to mind the idea that there's like a discontinuity between um the, the the past and the present um and the mom like moves on very quickly which does not actually happen in the novel and <laughs> right okay a lot of stuff too um so looking to the past and the need to enjoy the present so that actually does tie in with like Marianne's character in the original novel so sense and sensibility is is meant to be sense being um, Eleanor, where she is logical and she's more has a lot more self control, and then sensibility is Marianne, her sister, who is all about the poetry and and displaying all your emotions when you feel them, as you feel them, because the feels are real, you know that kind of stuff. Sure. So yeah. <laughs> very opposite. Um, they both, uh, and then the the. So the living in the present, I think, is the meant to be the Marianne character here and the living in the past, the stoicism and stuff like that was meant to be the Eleanor character here. Um, So that was the connection that I made there. But I will say that this one is the most disjointed as far as like the character personalities for me. Mm. Um. In the other stories, I could see glimmers of the of Austin's original characters. Again, she does not Yamashita does not you know actually fully develop these characters, um, relying I think on on your knowledge of the Austin characters already. So this one specifically, though, I was just like flabbergasted by a lot of it because the perhaps it's because it's the first story in there, but I think that the characters really were the most dissimilar to the Austin characters uh, compared to the other stories. So 
But I think that thematically we could make a connection, but I think that this is the weakest one. Okay. That's okay. For me. Good assessment. Yeah. yeah and, and keep going with the others. Yeah. Um, for Monterey Park, which is based on Mansfield Park, which mm-hmm. is um, one of my favorite Jane Austen novels, um, even though it's like the longest one. Mm-hmm. Um, so this one's about the, the tiger mom, right? So Tammy, the tiger mom. The one um, with the the Philippines warehouse or yeah. facility. Okay. The party, they have yeah. the big party and she's pissed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So this one, um, the theme I think is the idea of like expectations. Um, so you have expectations of like, you raise these kids, you want them to do this, blah, blah, blah. Like that's what the tiger mom is all about. Right. And mm-hmm. then in Mansfield park, the idea is also about expectations. You will marry well, you will take over the family business. You will do this. Right. So it is about the idea of expectations. And I think that thematically they do match. Um, I think that Monterey Park, I think the theme is actually pretty similar to the theme in the Persuasions, which is, I think, also about expectations, which is also what Persuasion, the book, is about. Um, That said, I think that the Persuasion story is a more compelling story than the Monterey Park story because I just, I thought that it was more playful. And um, I think that the... For me, th- there was a little bit more character development in the persuasion story rather than in the Monterey Park. Yeah, that paragraph story. I read from earlier—it's—it's it's dumped yeah. on you, but it, it's there and it can be witty. It is insightful. There. Yeah, for sure. The yeah, exactly. Is the Monterey Park the introduction of the cousin who ends up kind of outperforming, quote unquote, all of them to the great surprise of you know her her savage upbringing or whatever the characterization would have been her you know not not yeah. doing piano from the age of three or whatever the story claimed is that yeah, essential because she to, was not raised by a tiger mom right is that essential to mansfield park is that a plot line in there right so in mansfield park fanny price is the poor relation who moves in with the bertrams oh okay and gotcha. yeah and so so it is very similar in that aspect and fanny price is the one who is actually like the best one the kindest one the uh, most subservient one the one who everybody can rely on and the others just kind of like got it got it ruin their lives see but the other ones <laughs> I, maybe this is the meta commentary right? maybe this is her incredible expertise at play but th- there are other people's lives in that story don't end poorly at all they're all fine it, it, there was no again it's like situationless in my mind like it, it didn't end mm-hmm. it just kind of ended with a with a shrug like yeah and they all did okay but she did better ha huh? isn't that you know isn't that interesting about how we raise people and you know our you know expectations for backgrounds and where you come from and all. but it it didn't feel like it had any oomph. It just like they all ended up doing whatever, and she, but she just went to Stanford or I forget the conclusion, Harvard or something. It just didn't. Yeah. I didn't feel the. And I, as someone who's never read Mansfield Park, the way I would edit this story would be make it from that cousin's point of view only. Make it way more chaotic in the house. It just add more conflict or drama or something. I don't know. It just felt like a nothing situation. So in, in Mansfield Park as well, there's there's a lot of little dramas. The big oh, okay. drama would be the um, the play. So the party in the okay. story and the play in the novel are very yep. similar in that the um, the parent who is in charge of like who is the the one who is like the tiger parent in both stories. Um, neither one wanted that to happen. And, right. But in Mansfield Park, 
that happens and then that sets off a lot of little conflicts that actually turn out to be way bigger conflicts that lead to the ruination of, of reputations and stuff like that. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's it's plot wise, of course, Mansfield Park is is um more developed. Um right. I think that Yamashita does just rush through, not rush through. I mean, she's, I'm sure she's very purposeful in the way that she writes, but like with, as far as like plot goes, um, it's not as yeah. much of her focus. How could you condense a novel down into a short story and then expect it not to be read and have people say it was rushed, which I don't even, we're not reading this in bad faith. We're probably reading right. this in too much good faith or something like I <laughs> <laughs> trying desperately to cling on to, but yeah, no, I think it's just really an ambitious idea anyway. Okay. On, onward to the next one. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, so the next one is Emmy, which is based on Emma, um, which I love that novel too, and and has some actual modern uh, uptakes on it. Like the the movie Clueless is based on Emma, mm-hmm. right? Um, which is such a great movie. Oh yeah, too. <laughs> I, Young Me loved that movie for some reason. I vibed with it big time. Yeah, yeah. I mean Alicia, Alicia Silverstone is just absolutely gorgeous. <laughs> yeah, it helps, and she's such a great actress. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so the theme for Emmy um, that I picked up on was um, generational misunderstandings, right? Which is the the idea of like the people who were in the internment camps versus um, the generation after that maybe were children during that time or did not experience it at all. Um, and the idea of cultural differences, um, which is actually pretty close to Emma, the the original story, because in Emma, as you've seen the movie, yes, I'm right. sure that they were pretty close to the novel, yeah, yeah. Um, where Emma is upper class and the way that she treats other people is like, she just has no understanding. Like her best friend is Harriet, just like in Emmy. And Harriet is not of the same class as Emma slash Emmy. Um, uh, and so she just thinks that she can tell her what to do and then that she can like hook her up with all these like higher class people, but then like completely misunderstanding and not even paying attention to the desires of that person and understanding the, the cultural boundaries of that person, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because she just just assumes that, you know, everybody has the same um experiences and the same opportunities that she does almost right and same thing when she talks with the Bates um in the novel who would be in in this short story like there's Jane Fairfax Jane and um Jane and Frank anyway um she just has no understanding of also like in in Emma the there's a misunderstanding between her and the Bates in that education wise and also money wise there's like a misunderstanding there too and then in emmy there's the the misunderstanding between emmy and and the entire uh nisei um group when she realizes um after talking to um her friend there who is meant to be mr knightley that that the reason the Nisei don't talk about it is because it is so traumatic and, and her understanding oh, okay. at the end yeah. there, which is the same as Emma's understanding that, Oh man, I totally screwed up. And wow, I am so oblivious to things. How could I, 
how could I just so, so not understand that? Okay. Um, so I thought that was really well done as far as theme. Okay. Yeah, I could see that yeah. reading. I'd forgot that was the conversation they had about Marks, the little yeah. couple pages mm-hmm. of, again, in my mind, that's odd plotting to dedicate a few pages to a conversation about that where they, but I guess that's the disconnect that you picked up on well between the characters. It's their insights and ambitions are so different the way they respond anyway. Okay. Yeah. On to the next one. Uh, so the next one is Japanese Gothic, which is based on Jane Austen's Northanger Abbey, hmm. which Northanger Abbey is, is the one that kind of like stands out as far as Jane Austen's whole writing in that this, novel her novel was meant to be a defense of um the novel (laughs) oh okay yeah so it's um so there's a lot more in that particular novel there's a lot more like asides and stuff like that where she she more actively takes a role as like a narrator almost um and kind of is like hey it's not as bad you know novels are pretty great like don't look down on it like yeah it's not nonfiction, but it can still be you know, a great read and entertaining and educational in a lot of ways. Okay. Like that, right. Yeah. Um, and so with Japanese Gothic, I thought that uh, tonally it was pretty similar to Northanger Abbey in that there are a lot more asides in this story compared to the other stories that she wrote in this section. Oh. So I was like, okay, I can see, I can see that nod. Um, and the theme I thought was pretty similar in both, in both stories. It's about, identity and like discovering that identity the main character is in both novels kathy um they are kind of wishy-washy and they're very easily led astray and they have an interest in um the gothic as in like so the aesthetic for the the novel northanger abbey is like you know a, a gothic novel where there's like you know, gargoyles over this building and there's death, but there's romance and, and stuff like that. So mm, okay. playing. So Yamashita, I think, did a, a really nice job of playing off of that and making it into like what we understand as like gothic as far as like kids who wear white makeup and black lipstick. Sure. Um, <laughs> so I thought that was pretty, pretty nice. Um, but also like the, the theme does, I think, fit. And in the end, the idea that... Um, the main character is on a search or, or on a journey. She's not actively searching because she doesn't know herself well enough to know that she, she is looking for who she is as a person um, really. But in the end, they, I think it, it does well. I think this is pretty spot on as far as um, both the theme and um, the, the character, the main character, the other characters, of course, eh, you, you, I, I get the nods to the other characters, okay. and I think that the nods to the other characters in this one are are better done than in some of the other ones. That's a type of accomplishment, though, I'd say. Yeah. If you if you notice this nod, that's something that someone like me probably would... It's too subtle for my radar or something. <laughs> well, on that one, I mean, I wasn't going to get any of it. And then on to yeah. Persuasions, which I'm assuming is Persuasion. Yeah, the Persuasions. Yeah, so this one I I enjoyed too. I really liked the uh, the lyrical plays there. Mm-hmm. Um, so the theme for this one was also expectations, um, and which um, in in the original persuasion, Anne Elliot is persuaded to not 
take Frederick Wentworth up on his um, offer of marriage because it, he wasn't like rich enough. Um, and so here Anne is persuaded not to run away with him, Fred. And right. um, so that was very similar. And the idea of like expectation. So in the end, of course, it's a, it's a romance. And then in the end, um, those expectations and how they come back like full force, I think that was pretty pretty spot on as well. Um, and yeah, I think that it overall it worked well with Austin's work, but I think that the side characters were unnecessary in the novel itself. Like those characters helped to develop Anne and, and uh, Captain Wentworth. But in this work, the side characters, I mean, the other members of Persuasions um, was just like, meh. Like, why are they even there? They 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 played no real part in the storytelling overall. Yeah. They were just there for the sake of, like, the fact that they were in the original and were important characters in the original. I remember it but, ended with someone getting a concussion. And I'll, I'll remember this, uh, not forever, but I'll remember this about the story. When that happened, I thought, wait, who is this person? Because it wasn't Anne or the other guy, kind of the two the relationship I was thinking the most about in that story yeah. and kind of analyzing. And so when that happened and then it ends pretty abruptly at the hospital and I, and all I could think was, who is this person? I don't even, didn't even really remember. I don't, it was probably somebody who really mattered. Um, so that character is in, in the original persuasion. Um, so the, um, Anne has a younger sister, Mary, who's married. And has like a couple of kids, right? Mm-hmm. In both the story and in the the novel, the the person who gets the concussion, which is accurate, actually. Okay, it, cool. Um, she's not throwing herself at Frederick in order for him to like, you know, like not on stage, but in both the novel and in the story, she does throw herself at uh, Captain Wentworth. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, <laughs> and he does not catch her. Uh, so. Perfect. So that was super accurate, like plot line. Yeah, that that one was accurate. But I also was just like, what what is the point of that? Like, yes, that is what happens in the original. But what is what is the actual purpose in the story? I was just kind of like scratching my head about that, too, I think. Yeah, she she does incorporate elements of the stories, but sometimes I'm just like, I, I think it's unnecessary. I guess that's where the overburdened overambitious nature kicks in because yes i i was left at the end grasping thinking well i thought it was about their connection you know they went these two different immigrants uh son daughter paths or you know different expectations and they very divergent paths and the story ends with that which isn't even about them really and i just thought is it what does mm-hmm. that represent is that supposed to mean something i don't who was she why did she matter i don't know it just yeah i when you have too many things crossing over i suppose too many threads loose or something in the story it I don't know. Just couldn't couldn't yeah. put it together at the end. Okay, but you thought that one would, that one seemed somewhat accurate. Then I guess that one had the yeah. details going for it. It did have the details going for it. I will say that. Okay, well, respect to that. Um, and then my favorite of them on its own merits, Omaki-san. Thoughts on that one? Because mm-hmm. I I thought that story functioned as just a story. It it does right it, even without your knowledge of Lady Susan. And by the way, this is probably the most accurately close to hmm. Lady Susan itself. Cool. Right? So it's like the, the closest to the original out of all of them, I would say. Is it then, um, before you begin the important work, is it then a, a crucial analysis for me to point out 
that because it is epistol is it epistolatory epistolary what's the yeah. letter well whatever the word is anyway i think it's epistolatory Latory? okay yeah these are the things see lit people we just we kind of remember stuff you don't have to memorize all the terms <laughs> anyway <laughs> but because of that whole conceit the fact that it jumps decades in time didn't bother me a bit the characterization felt smooth and coherent and did they epistolary. yeah epistolary there we go um and this one, I just felt like the scope of it didn't it didn't buckle under its own scope because that's how the correspondence stuff kind of works. And it's and it summed up what you needed to know and transitioned it smoothly between the, the letters, the gaps in time and all that. The relationships were clearer and I just it felt like a tightly contained. And I thought the the kind of little bit twist at the end with Omaki jumping into the story at the end the way she did was a final nice little insight but no anyway so maybe that's an important takeaway is that this one justified its vast time scope whereas the other ones maybe tried to do too much with too big a cast of characters and too much plot to cover or something anyway take it away though so i i agree i think that so first of all the format is the same in lady susan it is an epistolary novel gotcha. okay so the the format is the same. The main character, the idea of like people writing about her and like the perceptions of her and stuff, that's that's all the same. Um, it's specifically about like marriage and they gossip about her marriages and stuff like that and her relationships with men and her relationships with other people. So story wise, same. Um, and the theme being um, the the fetishizing of. Um, Asian women, the idea of like female self-preservation and um, also like there's like a, a cultural gap that leaves you open to criticism and misunderstandings right, and stuff like right. that. Um, so I think that that's, um, so thematically it works, uh, format wise it's the same, character wise pretty much the same. Um, so it was the, the most uh, similar to the original, I feel like, out of all the stories. Huh, and okay. even if you don't know the story, it is, it's a complete story. It's got character development, it's got conflict, it's got resolution, and it just does really well with that. And it also does all that stuff while also maintaining the Austin, Jane mm -hmm. Austen's, like, original works in a lot of ways. It's, I think that it was... It was great. It was well executed. Yeah, and, it was and... the of the ones we've just talked through. The only one where by the end, I, I felt like it had such a. It's like I, I don't know. I feel like I'm contradicting myself across pods now. But it felt like it wrapped up and tied tied its own bow. You know, and and I know I've said many times in the past that I mm -hmm. don't I don't like a story that at the end tells me what I should think or feel. This one I don't think it does based on its format alone. Like it's, you know, I'm reading a character's letter. I don't think the story can, the story can't narrate to me that way in first person really in the, in the same way anyway. But, and so this one, I just think it was concise and mm -hmm. had kind of a, a tidy plot conclusion, but I don't think it was in, I don't think it told me what to think or anything at the end, I guess is all I wanted to say. And then overall, then, what's your assessment of the project, yeah. of its success or failure? What do you think? So the the overall, the title itself, right, the, the title of this entire collection mm -hmm. is Sensei and Sensibility. And as a whole, I think that, yeah, I, I think that as a whole, it does 
even the, the the title of this collection is a nod to the to Jane Austen, right? The, the mm-hmm. title is a nod to Sense and Sensibility, and I think that the the cut there is pretty well done as far as like the sanse section which would be the sense section is the logical section it's the one with the essays the ones with like uh, almost like a clearer sometimes a clearer discussion of some of the ideas that Yamashita is trying to impart about her ideas of what it is to be sanse um and so that logical aspect and then the sensibility, which is meant to be emotional and more artistic. So the arts would be the sensibility. That's going to be the stories and the the stories here that she borrows from Jane Austen. So I think that the title is fitting and that the division within okay. yeah. the collection is fitting uh, based on the title. Um, and I think that the collection as a whole, I think that there are some some really great writings in here. And I think that she as a writer is, is good and very Mm -hmm. purposeful in her writing. Um, But I think that some of her work is a little, as you said, over ambitious and can seem almost chaotic in that there's so much information to ingest. And sometimes the story is not as important as the message. And so, now it is time yeah. for an executive pod decision by me, a co-host. I only have 50% of the power, but I'm making 100% of this call. We are now going to cut my essay because, frankly, who cares after that? <laughs> <laughs> I had a response, so I just want that to be noted. I'm not. Be, this isn't a laziness <laughs> move, but I just don't think it, it, there would be no point to it now. Um, it was a good question, and I thought my answer was fine. Sure. But we're also going to cut the lost pages, too. I just want to end with some critical assistance. Eh, just for okay. concision, I don't mind when these Let's run up it. on time, but we that was the meat of what I wanted out of this whole thing once the second half of this book became clear, and you delivered on it so wonderfully, so I'm glad that was what I'm glad we got through that and we were able to make your making those connections and talking us through those um frankly, I wish I would have had that before I started reading these <laughs> uh, but that's okay we we did it anyway and blind. Okay, we'll end now with critical (laughs) assistance. This is when we, in Book Club Part 2, bring some outside criticism of this work into it, and we talk about it, get you some perspectives from other people before we end. I'll go with mine first to give your vocal cords a break, (laughs) if if you want it. Um, I chose my article from the Asian Review of Books, that's just .com. It is by Susan Blumberg Kaysen, or Kasson. And it is, I think the title was just kind of a review or something. I, I didn't pull the title, that's my bad. But that's... Google that and that website, you'll find it. A couple quotes that I want to talk about. By the end of the Sansei section, the reader has a good grasp of the issues and the culture of Issei, Nisei, and especially Sansei families, necessary to appreciate the sensibility section, which, while it also addresses internment camps and cultural differences between Issei and Nisei, does so with a mischievousness characteristic of Austin novels couple things there. I completely agree that the first half covers those things well. I especially like the nonfiction about all the immigrant families to Brazil, the kind of the the women's uh, role, their kind of like bore, uh, bedrock strength in that in that whole situation and how they kind of propped up, helped found those communities, kind of a lost appreciation or something that I enjoyed that part a lot and the essays I thought worked mm-hmm. pretty well. The fiction somewhat in the first half. Again, the colonoscopy, I think, had real promise in its idea. Um 
I don't think the back half is that mischievous. I think it's literally mischievous because there's little devious things that happen. You know, there's little social faux pas and kind of little social critiques going on back and forth. But the thing I thought was missing, and now granted, Austin compared to a 2021 writer is understated and is she's she's going to seem long-winded. If I gave somebody who had never read her a blind copy of the book, it would obviously, the style would be off-putting just because the writing style has changed a lot. But right. I didn't find the social commentary that biting. I didn't find the characters... I don't know if I want to say wacky, zany, outrageous. I don't like we were talking through and I forgot which story now where I was alluding to, I think maybe the Emmy one, but I just, I wanted more, or it was the one with the cousin who comes in to live with the, the high achieving rich family. I, I guess I just wanted more pronounced conflict or pronounced kind of the balls to be bouncing off each other in a more aggressive way. So just the situation and the way it all built up in some of these just didn't, didn't feel that mischievous to me. I know it literally was cause there's these, you know, social conflicts happening, but it just felt rushed and therefore I didn't get the mischief. Yeah. I don't know. I may, rushed, I think is a, is a good yeah, word. The, it, yeah. You got to get through so much of the Austin references that you lose the, the characteristic wit in the writing or something, but Anyway, Mm -hmm. the other thing I'll briefly mention is the review concludes, um, the Sansei and Sensibility stories fit together nicely as a diverse cross-section of Sansei experiences. The Jane Austen adaptations are fun and lighthearted and serve as an apt framework for the collection. It's going to be a hard no for me. I don't think this framework was apt at all. I think maybe if she did a couple, maybe novella length or something, and really let Mm -hmm. these breathe, and I don't want my critique of this work to be so repetitive as it has been but i will again just say that i think it was too ambitious too condensed and it was hectic for it or something it didn't feel like you could get a sense of character development or just sort of which then of course like we said let's use the romance again as an analytical framework for this if the romance had been fleshed out that's a good vehicle for satire it's a good vehicle to observe you know differences in generation or sansei or east versus isei nisei or something but it just I don't know. I And the lighthearted part, too, I don't want to downplay that. I do think these are intended for that, but my brain was so feeling the chaos of trying to understand and appreciate it, and it just, I feel like lost in that whirlwind of my own reading. I, di- I didn't feel these were lighthearted or comedic when I was reading them. I felt under a barrage or something. Like, I wanted to think mm-hmm. they were funny and insightful about in an Austin-like way about their social conditions, these immigrant conditions. And while I definitely learned things, I I don't know. I think the framework was a failure. I, I don't think it made me feel lighthearted, like I was having a lighthearted, fun, insightful social commentary read. So that's my final feeling on it. I mean, I the details are there, and I think maybe it's it's just me bringing my, my reading to this, but I just can't agree with those descriptions. Yeah, <laughs> Even as, even with my knowledge of Jane Austen's novels, reading her stories, I don't know that I would say, I mean, I think that some of the interpretations are fun, Mm -hmm. but lighthearted is not a word that I would use for any of her writings in this collection. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And even in the the Austen stuff, like lighthearted, no. No. No, there are, I mean, she, I think that she probably had fun coming up with those ideas and stuff like that. And, but lighthearted is not, mm-mm. no, I think that is just, just fundamentally incorrect. Yeah. <laughs> I, 
I don't know. And I always want to chalk it up to maybe my own failures first, but I the fact that we came down, I don't know if we came down in the same reading camp on this one, but similar enough for me to think, okay, maybe it wasn't, you know, maybe I did reread enough and it just wasn't, and the connection just was never going to happen for me or something. Because at some point I'm, you're beating yourself up. I was rereading that parts of that Pride and Prejudice one, just looking for more stuff from the father, just just hoping that I would remember something about that father character and his wit or his detachment, and I just couldn't. Uh, the ending left me with something, but at any rate, those are the only quotes I wanted to share from mine. I think it's a those are yeah. perfectly valid readings, and I I hope people who love Jane Austen can appreciate this. But that's that would be my takeaway, and for yours, Amanda. Yeah, um, I got mine from the Los Angeles Review, and it's mm-hmm. called Review, Sansei and Sensibility, um, and it's by Keon Yu. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to skip down here, and I'm going to say, um, to the non-Jainite reader, like myself, the sensibility stories often fell flat compared to their Sansei counterpart, mainly because they rely on a deep knowledge of Austin's novels to fill context for every character and incident. Sensibility attempts to distill entire Austin novels into 10 pages, which gives the reader inadequate time to emotionally latch on to the rotating cast of characters and numerous side plots all thrown up at once. Um, well, thank God. So I thought that that was, yeah, a pretty fair assessment. Um, luckily, I am familiar with Austin, so I could make those connections, but... Yeah, if if you're not familiar, it's going to be overwhelming, I think. <laughs> it feels weirdly comforting to get that critical agreement or consensus or something that's uh, way off my shoulders. It's pr- it's very well written, well said. I don't I feel like I've said the same thing 10 times this episode, but yes, that's <laughs> great, great comfort for me anyway. Um, and the same writer goes on to say, the genius of Omaki-san is that Yamashita does not give Omaki an actual voice as she is only spoken for and gossiped about. Despite this impediment, however, Yamashita is able to emblazon a complex humanity into Omaki, whether through her exoticization by American men, her difficulty as a new immigrant, or how she dealt with the Austenian contingency of tying and untying herself to family hmm. um so yes it is factually incorrect in that yeah omaki does have a voice we see some those of her i think that was what gave the ending such nice potency and i think there were yeah. some throughout too because i went back because when i saw that i was like man i'm almost certain that is incorrect because it ends with yeah. her voice it's that she's the right. final say which is i think is the right ending but then I, I, yeah, I don't know. I felt like I was being gaslit on that one. I was like, wait, I think I swear <laughs> she said things because I was checking the title so carefully just to make sure I knew. At that point, I was accustomed to the the vast cast of characters these short stories could have. And so at that point, yeah. I was being very cautious in the reading, wanting to make sure I knew each character's purpose. And so, yeah, yeah no, I, I thought her parts were some of the best. And doesn't her English improve, too, over the letters? That I thought I noticed that as I well. I think so, yeah. Yeah, that she, yep. there's some grammatical mistakes in the early ones. But mm-hmm. yeah, no, I, I, well, again, I just am in agreement with this author, I suppose, then, because I thought that story was great. Yeah, so I, that's why I pulled it, and um, it, it points out that you know there's the 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 complexity of her character, which makes it a more compelling story compared to the others. Mm, okay. Yeah. Um, 
And then the final thing that I'll say yeah. is, um, overall, Sansai and Sensibility often brings the reader to acute moments of clarity, but at times reads as reconfigured mimicry, especially when compared to her innovative earlier novels. Nevertheless, there remains a dynamism and aliveness to Yamashita's cast of characters who flout and investigate every single stereotype placed upon them, ever expanding the complexities of Japanese America. Huh. Um, so I... I uh, I think I agree with this where there are moments in her writing where I'm just like, mm, yeah, that's a great point. Or, oh, I hadn't thought about it that way before. And then there's other times where you're just like with the, the Sansei or rather with the, the sensibility stories, some of them, like when you were asking about <clears throat> um, the character throwing herself and ending up in the yeah, emergency room. Yeah. yeah. Like that, that is just like, part of the story in the original and, and why is that even in, in the, her story mm-hmm. so I thought that was well said um, I have not read any of her other novels so I have no idea I can't make that comparison but. right right and yeah I just I, I know I said earlier in the episode very self-referential episode for me I keep thinking back to things I said maybe because I know I don't have too much <laughs> actually exciting insight I just I'm going to speak in circles that's good podcasting I think that's what everybody did. that's what all the conversational shows do why do we have this yeah, eight sure. page outline here anyway um, <laughs> no but I think as I again had said earlier I, I don't want people to hear this and hear me say oh I knew everything about Japanese America and I you know I didn't learn anything from this that's absurd I didn't mean it in that regard. I just felt like the themes of immigrant life that this book hit, there were details that were uniquely Japanese American to be sure, tons of them and a lot of nice parts, quips, little snippets and stuff that felt very specific. I just don't think I'm going to leave this with a new understanding, I guess is ultimately what I would say. I do think it Mm -hmm. interrogates those stereotypes. I don't know if I'm leaving with a new... As again, as a complete outsider to the matter, a new understanding or sort of human connection to it all, I guess, is my my big takeaway. Yeah. Reconfigured mimicry is kind of a harsh, but maybe quite fair way to put it. I don't know. Yeah. And maybe, yeah, maybe that's the disconnect. Well, as we wrap up this episode on Sunset and Sensibility, Amanda, any final thoughts? I know you had... I know you had your say on the Jane Austen stuff, which was amazing, but do you have any other final thoughts on the collection as a whole? I think that I would have to, this is a a read that I would have to like really take one story and just like go bit by bit by bit and take Mm -hmm. like almost a week on that story to, I think, really appreciate it. It's, It's so dense with meaning, with personal meaning, um, that I, I think it would be, it's unfair for me to render any judgment on it without having given my, my due, due diligence in what I think that it demands, which is right. a clearer study on it. You know, there's so. always layers of reading and layers of reader. I think you just gave it over two hours of podcasting diligence, which is an enormous amount more of a read than, I don't know, whatever percentage of people human readers (laughs) definitely over 99 percent. i assure you of that given you know how many people are in undergrad and grad programs for english literature literary studies but so i i don't know i mean you're right though there is another level there there is a person out there composing a master's or doctoral thesis that could use this book i have no doubt it 
it, oh, you know, yeah, it has things sure. of value in it, no question, and insights, and there's interplay of things. For a person picking this up off a of Barnes and Noble shelf, uh, we'll get into this. You know, if you're hearing this, then gosh, you're you're way past the book review, which we haven't recorded yet. Uh, we always do that at the very end as a bit of a podcasting note, but it's going to be a tough sell for a recommendation, I think, for me. But I think it has one, though. It definitely has one in it, yeah. would be my final takeaway, which we'll, you and I will discuss briefly. That's my final thought on the matter. We do have other books coming up, folks. We have been the Lightly Literary Podcast. Again, follow us on Instagram and Facebook, all one word, the Lightly Literary Podcast. We have other books coming up, as I mentioned. I'll, I'll discuss them briefly here, but not too long. The Devil in the White City is our next book. It's by Eric Larson, some nonfiction about the Chicago World's Fair and murder. Murder's big in the pop culture right now, Amanda. We got to get in on this murder. <laughs> it's about damn time. We probably missed the window, but that's fine. It's kind of our whole deal. So, But we're getting in on the murder, people, serial killers and such. The next book after that is Wild in America by David M. Friedman. That's Wild with an E, as in Oscar Wilde. That is a study of celebrity. Again, that's pop culture relevant, right? It's, you know. Yeah. One of the first ever celebrities. Come on, people. And then the... Yeah, the Victorian keeping up with the Kardashians. Hell yeah, man. And he's witty. But maybe not as witty as people <laughs> thought. I know the the researcher debunks some of the... Oscar Wilde has been uh, ascribed very kind of socially impressive witty witticisms and stuff. And I don't know if all of that's true. I guess there's a lot of myth making around him. I guess we'll find out. Anyway... Final book that we have picked out in order is Tracks by Louis Erdrich, which is a Native American story of, I think, kind of an interwoven history of, well, I don't know. I got to go read my own. I chose it, too, and I did a lot of research on it, but now I forget the plot of it anyway, but we'll we'll describe that one in the book recommendation. Okay. We're going to wrap this up here, short of an hour and a half, so we did our diligence. Amanda, you stand now in the Mount Rushmore of... Pride or not, I was gonna say pride, and pride of Jane Austen devotees and scholars. Hold hold your head high. You've done an incredible project. You've accomplished something wonderful, and I'm sure wherever Jane Austen's buried, which you probably know where that is, don't you? <laughs> no, somewhere in England. <laughs> okay, never mind. I figured you'd been there or something. You took a pilgrimage or something. I did. You were... in England, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, wherever Jane Austen is buried, she's rolling over in her grave, giving you a big thumbs up. <laughs> you've done an admirable task. Anyway, uh, thanks for listening if you've stuck with us this far, and we'll see you soon between the pages. <laughs> <laughs>